Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Zach Tatham, a Toronto filmmaker whose work includes the charmingly lo-fi Space Breakers, which screened at Toronto's What the Film Festival in 2016. The festival's back at the Royal Cinema and the nearby Monarch Tavern this weekend, Saturday, February 24th, and Sunday, February 25th, so this seemed as good a time as any to get Zach on the podcast. Zach picked Sorcerer, William Friedkin's remake of Henri-Georges Clouseau's The Wages of Fear, a dream project for Friedkin, who was on a high after the back-to-back smashes of The French Connection and The Exorcist. With a screenplay by Waylon Green that strips the story down to its basics, a cast of stone-faced anti-heroes led by Roy Scheider, Francisco Rabal, Bruno Kremer, and Amidou, and some amazing practical stunt work, Sorcerer is a compelling, grim, unmistakably adult cinematic experience, and unfortunately, compelling, grim, unmistakably adult cinematic experiences were not what audiences were looking for in the summer of Star Wars. Dismissed by critics and rejected at the box office, Sorcerer spent decades in the weeds, ultimately getting the respect it deserved with a digital restoration in 2014. We're here to give it a little more. This is someone else's movie. I got it on Blu-ray. Okay. So, like, I had just been hearing about it, and it, like, just looked so intriguing. Like, I don't I don't know what the name really meant. Yeah, um, I'm still not sure. A lot of confusing things about it, but, like, just looked kind of, like, raw. And I love, like, just, like, the trailer just look, looked amazing. Um... And then, yeah, like, I just love the simplicity of it. Um, Love, like, kind of like this overarching, it's just kind of like this feeling of doom, kind of, Mm. for the entire movie. Yeah. Um, For, like, flawed characters in, like, a really desperate situation trying to dig themselves out. And then I had actually seen the... For the, like the I guess the wages of fear. I was gonna ask if you had it. Yeah, I saw that years ago, and then I like put it together, and I like loved uh, Friedkin stuff a lot. So just like was like wow, like need to see this movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I, like just loved it completely, but it's pretty depressing. In a, in I guess so. I, mean, uh, I saw it. I'm trying to remember the first time I saw it was probably on film as opposed to because it was one of the back in the day well I missed no I missed it in 77 because I was 8 or 9 and Star Wars was the thing that took all the attention as which kind of killed it from what I hear yeah he was it was positioned as this the next film from the director of The Exorcist this huge follow up that he'd been working on for 4 years and this passion project and it is that story of the get out of jail free card when you make a movie as big as The Exorcist you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And he said, I want to remake The Wages of Fear. Yep. And they did and that. add a ton more to it. Yeah. And strip it Beef down, it too, right? Like it's, yeah. It's, it's this really interesting reinterpretation of the material, because he's, he's expanding certain things mm-hmm. uh, and and yet just yanking out. Like there's, no, there's almost no dialogue in the second half of the film. Yeah. It's uh, like pure suspense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all practical. Like, everything you see is real, which is just yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah. Uh, so I missed it, and it became this legendary thing to me. Right. Uh, and in the late 80s, Universal released the Laserdisc. That's how old I am. Uh, and it was open mat, 
which was a huge deal at the time because it was the wrong aspect ratio. Friedkin for a while, I'm such an aspect ratio nerd that I have to talk about this. William Friedkin spent most of the 1980s and 1990s betraying his own movies by not releasing them in widescreen. Really? Uh, Yeah, he resisted letterboxing longer than almost anybody else. Okay. But, uh, But Sorcerer, almost as an answer to the Laserdisc release, suddenly showed up in rep theaters again. So I went and saw it at the Bloor. Okay. Uh, in 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 projected on film in its proper aspect ratio, uh-huh. and with a friend of mine, and his first response as soon as the credits came up was all that way. It's just like that. That was wow. Yeah. And I don't mind nihilism. I'm yeah. I'm kind of good with it. It's it like kind of makes it fun. Like like I was just thinking to myself, it kind of the kind of like how he stripped it down. Like how you kind of it leaves all this mystery about each character, yeah, and they're all kind of flawed. It kind of almost all works together in being like fun nihilism, I guess. Yeah, well, because we know we know more about them than any of them knows about the other because right. of the prologue, which is almost an hour of the film. Yeah, uh, and we like our perspective is illuminating I guess is the word I would use like we know more because we know they don't really deserve to live like they're all they're all there for a reason and if this is their hell then yeah. they can just that I'm fine with it they can stay there yeah and so it becomes this really compelling struggle to stay alive for another 10 minutes or another mile of road or you know they're probably dead from the beginning if you if you Take the, yeah. like the moral interpretation of it. They don't deserve to survive this, but they're also going to stop the fire and save people. Yeah. So their odyssey has meaning. Yeah. But yeah, oh. it's a rough, dirty kind of morality. Yeah. <laughs> like it's lives for lives. It's the most basic kind of. It's not a redemption arc because I don't think they're really redeemed. They're just buying themselves a reason to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like definitely one of the things I like about it. It's like a lot of a lot of flawed people and flawed environments and flawed choices and like yeah just just like it feels feels a lot like pretty real i guess maybe well the sweat feels real like there's oil on everything it's grimy and ugly and uh and desperate and if you're going to if you're going to tell that story there's nobody better than roy scheider yeah who i just you know i i saw jaws when i was very young and he's always been my hero Right. Like he's my male archetype. I remember hearing, like, looking at some fun facts, I guess, mm-hmm. before this. And it, it was saying that it was Steve McQueen was Friedkin's first choice. I could kind of see that. But and he was he, sick, right? Like he was already ill. I guess. Or maybe I, he, he died in 81, so maybe not. Well, maybe 80. But I, I, I just heard it was like, it sounded like a bunch of deals were going on. Yeah. And like, Steve McQueen wanted his girlfriend to be in it at the time, or something like that. Ali like, McGraw? Was it Ali McGraw even then? It was, right? Because that was... It might They be. would have been putting this together when The Getaway was coming out, and... Yeah. That would... Where would she even... I guess you could kill her in the first five minutes, but you can't really right. her a role. Yeah, because I guess Roy Schneider's part doesn't really have a, a female connection or anything. No. The are, banker has a wife, but... Yeah, there's... But they're not... They're with them. They're not. Yeah, it was just a very small role. Yeah. It's men, mainly men getting getting dirty and <laughs> yeah, falling apart. Yeah, brotherhood <laughs> of desperation. Yeah, it, it's um, so so yeah, it's uh, 
it's always been a film that I've, uh, for, I mean, not always. First, for 20 years, it was a myth. For 10, yeah. For 10 years, it was a myth. And then I, I saw it and really liked it. And yeah. I've kind of gone back to it every now and then. And I finally saw it um, theatrically again the first time in, I guess, 25 years when the Restoration played TIFF. Right. Uh, and it was digital, but it was still pretty good. Yeah, they did a good job. Looks like they, like, I mean, the colors are pretty amazing. There's a lot of grain. Yeah. But it's not bad. It yeah. It just helps the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's it's messy. Yeah. It's, atmos- yeah. I mean, it's atmospheric. is is under. Seems like it. some rain got into the film. Yeah. Some dirt got into the film. Yeah. It's... It really, given how minimalist it is, uh, it's an incredibly immersive film. It doesn't skimp on detail. Everything is there. Yeah, but it's it excruciating also, at parts. <laughs> yeah, it just but it doesn't dwell on anything either. It's it's a, one of the few films where you completely understand like, urgency and the passage of time without any stylized cutting or any kind of. I, mean, I guess the music is probably the biggest added element because yeah. it's so propulsive. Yeah, but but minimalist. Very. Like, it's just just the same. It feels like it's like the same song. Kind yeah, of, yeah. Almost, like the just loop comes in. Whenever it's needed, this awful heartbeat, yeah, that, that won't stop, and and there's nothing, you know, it's, it's it's, it's not a survival picture, but it plays like one, right? Because they only have what they have, everything is hostile, yeah, everything is always trying. To, I mean, the the trucks could explode at any moment. There's always a sense of, uh, of of tension, and and you can't solve this problem if something goes yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's a s- snowball downhill yeah. kind of. But somehow also on fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's not helping either. But you get yeah. you get these incredible images and these these moments of of just pure. I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> I'm just that's fine. I, I love the film. I think it's great. And um, so yeah, how did how had you were you aware of it all along? Did you know it was as important? Um, as- yeah, like I I really only just found out of it. I think about like four years ago, just kind of. With the with the Blu-ray coming out, so really you had yeah like I it, it was all over my head and mm-hmm. like I had seen French Connection and The Exorcist but I hadn't seen much of Friedkin stuff mm-hmm. and now I I saw um, Killer Joe and The Guardian uh, the I think Guardian. those are the only four that I've seen of his That's oh and also um, Live and Die you must oh yeah I've seen Live and Die and also the one um, with Al Pacino. Oh, the, cruising, cruising, yeah, the, yeah, the problematic one. Yeah. Uh, oh, the Guardian's bad. That's a good. Yeah, the Guardian's bad. Yeah, I has, saw that. In the has some really fun, fun scenes in it, but it's it's pretty tough. Yeah. It's like, seems like, yeah. I guess like after the, the flop of Sorcerer, his kind of he rhythm just, he and budget got out of whack. Yeah. And, well, his next movie was Deal of the Century, which I bet you've never even heard of, right? I, Chevy Chase, Gregory Hines, and Sigourney Weaver in an arms dealer comedy. Right. It is not good. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. It's a. It's just a mess. But it sounds sounds like fun. It could. It doesn't sound like his thing. Yeah. No, I think it's just a bad fit for everybody. Yeah. But it's just one of those movies that, again, saw it theatrically in 1981 or 82, and just nobody knew what to do with it. It's right. just a film where you stare at it. And yeah. then he was in the weeds for a while. Well, To Live and Die in L.A. kind of pulled it back together for a bit in 85. Yeah. Um, but yeah. then back into the weeds. Yeah. And everyone thought he made Manhunter, even though he didn't. Right. It was a weird thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's he's a fascinating guy. I mean, I've like I'm always interested in what he does. So. Yeah. Oh, and he's as a as a person. I mean, he's a he's a great. He's a character. Like he is this this kind of old school movie guy. Yeah. He just needs a big cigar and and sunglasses and oversized sunglasses. I interviewed him for Killer Joe. Oh yeah. I guess yeah. When he came through TIFF, and he just. He told stories. He didn't answer questions. He just, whatever we talked about, he would launch into an anecdote. And they were all great. They were, I mean, some of them were about the movie, some of them were about production process. Others were just about this actor he liked from something else. He told me that Michael Shannon originally played the role that on stage that went to Emil Hirsch in the film, and I couldn't reconcile that. Even as a younger actor who was this imposing presence, like he shows up in, in Groundhog Day, and it's now it's jarring, because, Jesus, that's Michael Shannon. He's hulking over Bill Murray. Yeah. Um, and so he was saying, yeah, Shannon, you know, I worked with him on Bug, and he could have done it, but we figured he was a little too old. And then he just started talking about all of Michael Shannon's stage roles. I was like, okay, you know all of this stuff. You're not just filling time. He was really interested in it. And we did talk about Sorcerer a little bit, just because I, I love it, and it hadn't been released. It, he, right. he didn't know anything about it. vaulted or something for yeah. some reason. He didn't know about the release plan, but he was sure it was coming. He just said it was a rights thing. Yeah. And it was for years. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. and this goes, this goes back to the, um, the history of the film. <clears throat> it was so expensive that it was split between two studios, yeah. uh, Paramount and Universal. If I yeah, correctly. And but it was not even really expensive by today's terms. But yeah, definitely like yeah. went over budget. Yeah, and it's I mean it's like Apocalypse Now in that the studios poured money into it because he's this guy too... is an American auteur. He's huge. He's gonna yeah. it'll come back to us. And then yeah, it just opened against Star Wars and was murdered. Yeah, I remember like looking up uh, information about the title, just <laughs> trying to figure it out for the longest time. Yeah, like. Why is it called Sorcerer? Like, I didn't... I kind of ended up liking it in, in, like, this mystique about it. But then it kind of kind of makes sense that he, he, he explains it in that the sor- it's like a an evil, cruel sorcerer of fate. Right. And that's kind of how he felt with his movies. Like, he had had success and he wasn't sure if it was fate or if it was, like, if it was going to be good or bad. He just kind of, like, felt... Adrift, I guess, mm. and then that's how he like interprets these characters. They're being kind of like beaten up by fate. They don't really have any control. Um, yeah, I guess if you're going up against something as evocative as the Wages of Fear, yeah, you're gonna it's lose. A bit, no yeah, it's a you do. bit more clear, poetic title. Um, and then it's kind of funny also because yeah, like there's only the the. The truck named Sorcerer yeah. only is, like, what, in two shots yeah, and in the movie? <laughs> it doesn't really register. Like, it's not, like, some huge metaphor like, yeah. or some grand statement. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's like, it feels like there's going to be some, like, some some magic in it at some point. Yeah. At least when, I feel like if you just saw the poster or, like, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, and it was sold as a horror film. I mean, the, the, yeah. the original marketing is distressing. Yeah, it's and coming like, after The Exorcist, I guess. Yeah, and that was the Napoleon Friedkin director of The Exorcist. You hear Sorcerer and you hear... Yeah, they messed it all up yeah, in the yeah. advertising. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really amazing how now, you know, 
40, it's 41 years later and, and the title is now gone back around to being evocative and mysterious and it doesn't really matter what it's called yeah. uh, to the point where you can say, oh, it's like Sorcerer and anyone who's seen the film will instantly know what kind of mood you're talking about and what yeah. kind of feeling you're describing. Yeah. But yeah, in 1977, no one knew what was coming and it wasn't anything anybody wanted. It was, I think it was like two... Grim, even for nineteen seventy-seven, just as everything is getting Star brighter. Wars, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> well, everything's getting brighter and more colorful. Yeah. Movies are starting to wake up. You know, seventy-six brought them Rocky, and, right. and Taxi Driver, and Network, and all the President's Men. But those are all, you know, even the darkest ones feel triumphant somehow. They sell a big, like yeah. Network is kind of a happy ending, even as the as the bad guys win, and. This Carter's is almost like you're, you're cheering on the bad guys. Well, yeah, there's nobody to root for. <laughs> yeah. Except the nitroglycerin, and that's yeah. just mean. You don't want to do that. Yeah. You just, like, you just want to see this chaos ensue. Yeah. All the pieces, it takes so long for everything to set up. And then, once they're in place, it's just like this little bottleneck of plot where it all gets thrown away anyway. Because once they're behind the wheel, there's nothing else. Yeah. Which is really compelling. I mean... You could, I mean, I, I was trying to figure out if there's a way to do it now, if there's a modern analog, and I don't know that there is, because you'd have to start with them in the car and flash back, and that wouldn't work. Yeah. You know, like, you can't interrupt the journey. Yeah I, I, yeah, I really dislike movies that kind of disrupt a flow, or like, you yeah. know, I mean, I prefer, yeah, if something's just straightforward, like, like, chronological narrative, and... I feel like it, it adds to the suspense so much more. Oh, yeah. I just saw something recently that maintained for a good, like, 40, 50 minutes of a, of a straight-up narrative and then popped up a flashback, and I just thought, oh, no, don't do that. Yeah. You were, you were, going, you were doing so well with the environment. And you the, yanked, yanked me away yeah. from what I was loving. Yeah, and even the use of flashbacks in something like Annihilation that just came out. Yeah, Wait, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. So you know, like, the I, same I thing, like, right? I like love so much about that movie. But yeah, the the flashbacks it could be like, stop it, don't yeah. do that. Well, it's Alex. I don't know. I don't want to be in this environment. Yeah, I don't think he trusts us to follow the development of certain things, like the tattoo and stuff. Yeah, without the flashback, flash forward thing, and it's just like, don't tell me everybody else is dead. Yeah, they're gonna be dead then. That's no fun. Yeah, let me let me see it. Let me absorb it myself if i don't absorb it i'll happily watch it again yeah i'll happily talk about it yeah i saw there's a film at the canadian film festival this weekend called ordinary days okay uh, which is a really interesting take on one event from multiple perspectives that doesn't feel like that it doesn't feel like it cheats it does go back in time okay it's three segments about 25 minutes each maybe yeah a couple of them are a little longer but they're uh framed around the days of this disappeared girl she goes missing. We see her at the very beginning, and she goes missing. We follow her parents as they wait to find word of her. And then we roll back to start again and find the cop who's looking for her. And then in the final segment, we find out what's happened. And finally, the resolution actually plays. It, it's one of those things where you're not repeating and jumping back and forth. It's just a smooth line each time. It's just that you start again. Right. And that stuff... Yeah, I don't, that I don't mind better. that. Like It's justified because... There's multiple main characters, I guess. Mm-hmm. And with Sorcerer, there are multiple characters. Yeah. And we all follow downwards yep. to the jungle, and then you're in the jungle with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was also hearing that, like, part of the confusion for people disliking the movie was because <coughs> you get, like, all these like, these four kind of 
huge locations at the beginning and for some reason like there's subtitles i guess and yeah. stuff like that for some reason people thought it was like a foreign language language film <laughs> for a little bit Everybody they had to put like a little something. notice on the board like oh it's yeah. only a foreign language it's only like subtitled for the first little bit because <laughs> we go to different locations uh, yeah people are so dumb <laughs> The idea that he isn't condescending to us, that they are yeah. speaking their own languages, it, it sets up later that they can't really communicate. Yeah. There is one point, I guess, um, when the gorillas, I guess, attack, oh, like, the la- the truck, they, like, Rose Schneider is in the truck, and they they get kind of, like, ambushed, I guess, yeah, by yeah. the gorillas, and I think that was maybe supposed to be... In a different language is what I read or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that's supposed to be, I guess they were speaking in Spanish. And the assassin character kind of understands what they're saying when they're saying, we're going to kill these two guys on the road. Right. But they're speaking in English. From what I remember. Unless, yeah, I don't think there's subtitles that part. Yeah. But, I I mean, it's it's all good. Yeah, well, but that's it, right? I mean, if the whole make point is this in, in this miasma where no one can understand each other fully... All you have are glances and, and and gestures. Yeah. And then even then they're ultimately they're across a bridge in the rain where they can't even hear each other and they have to communicate with Yeah. Basically semaphore with their arms. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's a stressful scene. Yeah. Oh yeah. Every time I watch it I'm just I'm not worried that they won't make it. I know. I mean, I know the movie. Yeah. But I worry about a, a stunt guy or the crew. Yeah. You're like, this looks so raw. Yeah. How do you? <laughs> shake a rope bridge with a truck on it yeah and not have someone die yeah. like it really does feel like and it's it's the thing where now I, I i mean what was it like watching it for you because you you've grown up with cgi and you've had that all around you i mean i was just like blown away um i kept like i was like it, it kind of feels like like so real yeah i guess oh, yeah. i mean it really at least is, the first right? time i watched it second time i did notice a little rope <laughs> a safety line? A safety line. And then I read about it a bit more, and they said they, like, had the whole scene, like, c- like totally controlled, and it was, like, a million-dollar scene. They had to shoot it multiple times, because, like, they flooded the... The river was, like, flooded when they're shooting or something, and then it, like, was completely dry, oh, so and they had to, had to like, it. protect the set, because the... The townsfolk nearby were superstitious and angry because they blamed them for, like, this drought or something. <laughs> but they literally had to, like, get helicopters and stuff to sprinkle the set with water. <laughs> and, like, I guess to make it fake rain. Look, yeah, and, yeah, they had, like, big big things to rock the, 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 the trucks and the bridge. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like completely authentic. Oh yeah, in the moment, in the theater. Just stressed out, this truck's just going to tumble right off. Yeah, it plays, it plays so well. The, the motion, it's the that's the moment when the title seems to make sense too. Because yeah. it feels like the trucks are alive yeah. and refusing to cross the, the bridge. Right. Uh, that, they, that whatever they're going to do, plus explosives, you know, volatile leaking yep. dynamite, but, <laughs> but whatever they're going to do... They don't have the final say. The people don't have the final say. The machines do, and the jungle does. Yeah. And, yeah, it's primordial and creepy in the best way. Yeah, like, these trucks could break down at any point, and, like, they kind of do. And, yeah, the jungle could just, like, they could. there's a tree in the way. Yeah. They could just 
sink into the ground, slip off the road, flip over. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't go camping. <laughs> yes. Yeah, never been my deal. It's a little insane. <laughs> and then it is, without getting into huge spoilers, it is ultimately uh, a futile and useless gesture for some of them. It's Right. It's yeah. The, it's the road to the end. Yeah, this this purifying fire of of uh, the jungle. Every metaphor goes out the window. Yeah, yeah. He somehow somehow makes it. Um, there's like a success to it, a mild success, mm-hmm. like an early happy success that you know you can't. It won't last. Yeah, I I, I love movies that kind of prom like promise you like like a happy ending um, and. Uh, like they a just, full catharsis. Yeah, but like almost like like half half like jokingly or like not not like not truthfully. Right. Like like we're giving you this because it's necessary for you to like feel like these characters succeeded in some way because of this like narrative de- device that kind of makes us feel better. It feels like we watch this movie for a reason. Right. But then there's like a little follow-up that like clarifies like yeah. this is how the world is yeah i kind of want this sounds so weird every time i th- but every time i see the movie i think about the the guy sent to get him like the guy who shows up at the very end of the movie the guy the, 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 the death gangster squad, i guess yeah the, hit, the, the like, gangster owns, hit squad owns this corrupt money laundering church yeah the people <laughs> coming for shider yeah I, I always wonder what their day was like you like? Did they have the same kind of trip? Did they have yeah. a, really, a really shitty time on the bridge? To how get long there? has yeah? How much time has passed? Yeah. How much did they money get there first? They they've been waiting. Yeah. What's the expense account on this sort of thing? Yeah. Like I thought they were going to hire somebody, but I guess they hired somebody to. And it has to be someone we recognize, right? Because from the beginning of the film, or else yeah, the audience might be confused it, in a way. Yeah. So again, there's stagecraft in this. There's so much thought that's gone into it in this. Really. It's not narratively ambitious, except that it is, because it's almost an experimental film in its second half. Yeah. But it is... A, the presentation of it is really smart, really considered, really thoughtful. I regret never asking him this, but I can only imagine what it's like to put so much of yourself into a movie that no one goes to see. Right. And it just... To watch it sink. Yeah. Opposite Star Wars, which, you know, nobody knew it was going to be what it was, but it was so clearly not a... In air quotes, serious film. Yeah, it was. It was a fun, fun movie. Yeah, I mean, I love it. Yeah, but Sorcerer. Yeah, he put four years into it. Yeah, it's went got to like stuff. Tons of locations. Changed the title. I heard the original title was called Ball Breaker. Yeah, I don't think they were going to get away <laughs> with that. I mean, it would have maybe at the time it would have been maybe more straightforward with the advertising. Yeah, if, yeah. I mean, but like for longevity, like you release a movie called Ball Breaker the same year as Smokey <laughs> and the Bandit, maybe you have a chance. Yeah. Uh, but it also it's a fun title. I don't know if there's any other movie called Ball Breaker. Yeah, well, it's probably it's probably an '80s sex comedy. Yeah, uh, but there's also no way to make people buy that title with this movie. It's so serious. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like just, a kind of a screwball title. Yeah, but oh but yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's it's kind of I think like it, maybe it like relates to the title why he chose Sorcerer. I guess he maybe he like saw it as like preemptive cruel wizard of fate right. coming to like cut him down for two really successful movies um but yeah like i'm, I'm sure he was a, a different person it's 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 hard i guess 
to have failure, but I feel like the movie's almost like about failure. It is, yeah. So. I mean, retroactively, it, it almost makes more sense within his career, too. It's about the terror of following successful movies, if you want to, you know, like the, if you want to think about the first half of the film is all the pre-production nightmare of coming up with the story and figuring out what to do and making wrong choices over and over again. And then the second half of the film is all about the production, which is grueling and horrible and alienating. And ultimately, yeah, you, it's for nothing Yeah. in the end. Now it was a fun ride. Yeah. <laughs> it's a metaphor for itself, unconsciously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a school of thought that says Christopher Nolan's Inception is about movie making. You know, like, it's collaborative, uh, creating a dream that will live beyond the artists who created it. I can sort of That's see a, it. Yeah, and it lets him play in three different sandboxes and all that stuff. Great. Fair metaphor. Yeah. But I'd never really considered Sorcerer as one until now, and it... It works. Going like the through fact a jungle, it, adventure yeah. filmmaking. Yeah, it's yeah. a different kind, I guess. Location shoots and not the, being able to fully communicate your intentions to people. Yeah, and the the chaoticness of the unknown and the unpredictable elements that are always going to pop up. And then even when you deliver, you're met with hostility. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's like uh, he's the sorcerer. He foresaw his own fate. Yeah. Oh, that's and he a, did it to himself. Who knows? That's a fascinating interpretation. I like it. Um, <laughs> I wonder if he would listen. I mean, if he would entertain the <laughs> thought, he'd probably be very hostile to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it did. Definitely, like I, I, I always want to watch more of his work, but yeah, I definitely feel like it kind of disrupted his flow. Yeah, he. Well, he's never been. Maybe he settled his ego. Maybe he, I don't know. If he got a big ego off the first two. And I think. I'm, how do you know? He seems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the arc of his career doesn't really have an arc. It yeah. jumps all over the place. Like, there's there's some purely competent commercial work, like Blue Chips, and there's another one around that time in the early 90s that wasn't bad, and then there's just stuff like Jade and The Guardian and, and yeah. Deal of the Century, where it's, why I guess you want it to work, but there's no movie there. Yeah, it's like studio films. Yeah, and then he, he went back to basics with, with Bug and Killer Joe and just took these Tracy Letts plays and turned them into character pieces instead of giant movies and they're both really I mean Killer Joe goes way over the top but that's part of it and, yeah and you can't really point to Bug and say that doesn't go over the top but he's um, he's found him I guess he found himself again in these smaller films yeah he returned to his roots I guess more control more chaos yeah um, at the same time, the with chaos is the less budget instead of the in the mechanics, right? Like it's it's all stuff that you can control with actors. Yeah. Instead of, I mean, I think the biggest set piece in Bug involves a space blanket and fluorescent lights. It's not and and some makeup, but but it's not hugely complicated. Uh-huh. And he's just he's just finished a documentary on uh, a priest who inspired the Exorcist or something. To me, I don't know if this is like a fair comparison, but. Right. He kind of seems almost like like he would transit like his he kind of like like his film work has got a documentary style to it. Yeah, like his, an honesty. His to best it. films are yeah they feel unadorned. Yeah, you know, like he's just pointed it. I mean, the documentary style of The Exorcist is absolutely the most disturbing thing about it. The yeah. fact that you can trick yourself into believing that this is all happening mm-hmm. because it's right in front of the camera and it feels real. Uh, yeah, it's called The Devil and Father Amorth. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Um, uh, it's Oh, it's only 68 minutes. It's a documentary. 
that finds Friedkin a legendary raconteur, leading a tour that moves from the infamous exorcist steps in Georgetown to Italy, where he meets with a 91-year-old Father Gabriel Amorth, official exorcist of the Diocese of Rome, accompanying Amorth on one of his harrowing house calls. Now I'm scared. He's still doing house calls. I guess so. 91? Well, I mean, you know your market. Right. <laughs> there was a, a documentary last year at Hot Docs um, called, I think it's called Deliver Us, and it's about the exorcists of Sicily. It's about the, the Catholic... Um, or no, the Franciscans, the Franciscan priests who still specialize in exorcism. And there's a moment where one of them does one over the phone. And <laughs> yeah, and you just think, oh, okay, that's just irresponsible. Right. But apparently if you I just mean, shame a demon, they go away. Yeah. Yeah, you just got to like point people in the right direction. I feel like that's, it's like life guidance maybe. Yeah. Is yeah. what it comes down to. It's Most like, of it is just mental health counseling. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Yeah, you're you're stressed out about something. I can see that you manifested it. Um, but yeah, just different language, I guess. Yeah. What do you think <laughs> you did wrong? Why do you think the devil is in you? Yeah, it's yeah. I, Therapy. I, I'd love I'd love to really dig into the idea of the demonic possession wave of the '70s in film influencing people who are susceptible to that sort of thing in the '80s and '90s. I mean, it right. clearly. Like, it's clearly what paved the ground for the, McMa- the McMartin School, the satanic panic of, uh, you know, kids with recovered memories of ritual child abuse, which were planted there by well-meaning hypnotists who were just trying to figure out why they were upset. And I don't blame the movie. The movie is simply a, a great work of art that caught uh, a public moment, like, in the, in the, un- in the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. But the legacy of The Exorcist, when you think about it, is there's a lot of damage done in the world. By, Possibly, yeah. By people, and I, well, I'd lo- yeah. I'd love to know how Freakin feels about that because uh-huh. it's not intentional, clearly. Yeah. But once it got out, it was out. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, yeah, and that's also possible. Like, I guess with like anything of success, will definitely influence in in a positive or a negative way. I guess, yeah. Like, it's almost like successful arts open to how you interpret it, and like people are definitely susceptible to like believing funky things yeah all the time yeah how that would kind of get into their unconscious yeah yeah well i wonder if maybe sorcerer is a return to kind of literal filmmaking where it's purely representative it is what it is right and there's no there's no way i mean even the the subject matter isn't original he can't claim that it's a thing that got into the world afterwards i mean french connection kind of played up people's awareness of heroin smuggling in the early 70s, but I think most of America knew that was going on. Uh-huh. It just made it stylized and, and exciting. Uh, yeah. But you can't say that it glamorizes the drug trade. Yeah. And then The Exorcist was used as a like a cultural um, two-by-four to sort of thump people into either believing in the devil or embracing the church or using it as an excuse. The devil made me do it became a catchphrase, for God's sake. It's one of those things where you're just in this new space where you're culturally, you're accidentally responsible for creating this thing. Right, yeah. So, Sorcerer? It's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. Sorcerer's (laughs) just guys and trucks. That's all this is. Yeah. Guys and trucks and explosions. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. Unless it's... I'm sure, yeah, like, kind of, like, yeah. (laughs) Real. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, then the obvious question is, you know, like, is there anything of Sorcerer that you've 
borrowed or lifted or stolen or incorporated into your own creative DNA? Um, maybe not directly, but like, I guess I, I've always kind of liked that structure of just kind of like hope, hoping for something yeah. like there's a singular goal and just like the, the craziness that happens on the journey and stuff that changes the characters, the characters got to kind of like, I love when characters get kind of like put through the ropes and, um, kind of like maybe don't survive in some way right it's got that kind of like unpredictable just kind of like let's 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 like point these characters in this direction and put them through the ringer yeah um trial by fire yeah so, yeah proving ground kind of thing yeah um well, what are you screening at the wtf festival well i screen i actually screened something i think it was two years ago now and that was like Space Breakers. Mm-hmm. It was this uh, kind of inspired by Polly Shore's Biodome, but vaguely, but but like changed. It's, it's more about a bunch of kind of kids in this alternate universe who, who see a commercial for this space mall called the Biosphere that promises like all these pleasurable activities and fantasies. So they steal their uncle's spaceship and have this kind of journey there but their spaceship like kind of breaks down they like run out of food and gas and yeah things just they just have to put out a distress call and like things just don't really go right yeah um it was kind of a rough cut when we played it so it's still kind of a work in progress it's been a lot of uh distractions (laughs) um but it like maybe has uh, probably probably given it more than it deserves if I say it took anything from Sorcerer. But no, it's a long journey. It's but a, yeah, like maybe on a trip maybe <laughs> quest narrative. Yeah, like extremely vague connection. Um, yeah, that's all we're looking for. Yeah, it was more just like a fun built a spaceship in the basement of Queen video, <laughs> and like just had a experimental kind of like story that came out of it so um are you going to be at the wtf festival this year yeah yeah i'll definitely be there hanging around yeah uh i pretty much like almost like everything that peter puts out or like curates i'm always impressed by and i was curious about (laughs) especially like laser blast that's like one of my favorite things going on in toronto yeah it's a fun series i i never would have thought there would be that much appreciation for crappy old movies from the 80s yeah that i did not like the first time around yeah yeah and like i was a little skeptical when it when it was on vhs at first it was a little hard to watch sometimes the vision sometimes it wasn't on vhs but it was like close to vhs quality like almost like a vcd i guess yeah but now since they have the the 35 millimeter kind of access everything's kind of just like the best it could ever be yeah Um, yeah so yeah, that just, that just took it up a, a huge notch, I feel. It fascinates me that there's a non-ironic appreciation of these things. I mean, yeah. they just screened Abraxas Guardian of the Universe, what, two months ago? <laughs> yeah. I saw that the first time around. Right. <laughs> it was not memorable. Right. And now people actually want to see it. Yeah. I feel like there's something to do with, like, the communal aspect of just, like, watching watching a, a like, a nonsense movie or, like, a... 
like it's like a, an honest movie mm-hmm. sometimes like there's honest parts to it yeah, people I mean, were trying to do something yeah when uh, you get lucky with those things I mean yeah. I, I, I truly believe no one with the possible exception of Michael Bay ever sets out to make a bad movie Right. Like if you're going to put in the effort, and it is, it's yeah. work, especially back then, it's work to make a movie. Yeah. Uh, you're going to want something that lasts or something that, that breathes, like comes to life. Yeah. And when you get flashes of it, yeah, it's something, I mean, the, the ideal is probably Cameron's Terminator, the first one where it looks raw and cheap and it, you can see the stop motion effects, but it doesn't matter because it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And that one's like not even funny. It's just like, I mean, it's like, it's yeah. got some. Got some like iffy special effects, but overall, it's like wow, this is like this is this is thoroughly like throw like like top quality like yeah yeah. So, what's the best thing you've seen at Laser Blast yourself? What's your favorite memory? Um, well, like probably like the latest one, surprisingly, maybe um, it was uh, which one was Stuart that? Gordon's Fortress. Oh, right, with Christopher Lambert and yeah, and the exploding neck collar. Yeah. Is that that one? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, everything about it, like, was kind of perfect in my mind. Um, just, like, this kind of futuristic prison, all these kind of subtle sci-fi, like, elements to it, like, like turret robots and laser bars. Yeah. And a really open concept underground prison silo thing. Yeah. And... It's- Cool. Yeah, he's always good at that stuff. He could make the most of a little. I mean, I'm thinking about Sorcerer playing in there, and it wouldn't be out of place. I guess it's way more expensive than most. Yeah, but it does have that same kind of handmade feel to it. Where yeah, it would play pretty well. I feel like it's almost it doesn't have enough flaws. Yeah, for like a laser blast. Maybe it'd be more like the Neon Dreams features. Although yeah, that's 80s, and this is earlier. But it feels like it's part of it. It could be part of the yeah, like. I mean, I guess their mantra is partly, like, underappreciated films. Right. But well, Sorcerer certainly was at the time. Yeah. Yeah, now I, I like, I... I'll make a case. I'll reach out. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd happily go see it again if they... I feel like they could play it... They don't even need to have, like, a special banner for it. Or, like... Yeah, they just, could just be, like, if the Royal is playing it. Yeah. Uh... I would happily go see it and tell everyone that I know to go see it. Have you seen it in a theater? Have you had the chance? No. I've only seen it on the digital Blu-ray. Yeah, we should get on that. That's it. I, I saw it in the Lightbox 1 when they, they did a press screening of the restoration, and there were maybe eight people in the room. Jeez. It's this great, big, empty, dark space filled with that movie. It plays. It really works. Yeah. Probably more satisfying than it was the first time I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they... They they kind of like did a res- restoration, but I feel like it wasn't like there hasn't been like a, a proper re-release. Yeah, I mean it's it was kind of seemed like a a bit of a half-assed re-release. Like, well, it was promo for the home video release, right? Like it was a month ahead of the Blu-ray, right? And they at this point now it's just easier to send the hard drives out into yeah. the world and say, hey, it's it's you know it's promotion, it's it's advertising. Yeah. Uh, which, weirdly enough, is what happened in the late 80s with movies like Abraxas Guardian of the Universe. They'd drop it into the Eaton Center for a week and then uh, play the same print in Vancouver the following week and say, National Theatrical Release, coming soon to video, and it would be out in six weeks. Right. That's how I ended up reviewing most of them. It was not a good time. But, uh, yeah, this... this the low-budget techniques. Yeah. Sorcerer could definitely use a reappreciation, a rediscovery. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll help with that. Yeah.
Yeah, hopefully. I would be happy. <laughs> Good job. My thanks to Zach Tatham, who will be wandering around the Monarch Tavern in the Royal Cinema in Toronto this weekend for the What the Film Festival. Say hi! I'd be there myself, but I'm out of town collecting podcasts in London. Thanks also to Peter Kaplowski. He knows what he did. You can find Zach on Twitter at ZTates, Z underscore T-A-T-Z, and check out his Vimeo account at vimeo.com slash Zach Tatham. For more information on the What the Film Festival, including the full schedule of screenings and events, visit laserblastfilmsociety.com, all one word, and click the link at the top of the homepage. You can find The Restored Sorcerer on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. The restoration looks and sounds fantastic, and if you haven't seen the movie in a while, you really ought to check it out again. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps, it truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.